Welcome aboard the Coastal Connection. I'm Jennifer Ritter-Gidry, your guide for this trip through Louisiana's coastal wetlands. Louisiana's role along the Mississippi Flyway is critical to the survival of over 400 bird species that travel annually from their home in Canada to their wintering grounds. Some birds like the Gulf of Mexico so much that they end their journey here and hang out with us, while others stick around for a few weeks, fortifying themselves to make it further down to Central and South America, where they'll spend their winters. Today we're talking about the Mississippi Flyway and coastal restoration efforts. Okay. I'm Patty Holland. Um, I'm a wildlife biologist by ex- education, a retired uh, biologist, fish and wildlife biologist with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, retired for many years. <laughs> so <laughs> some things are foggy when it comes to Fish and Wildlife Service uh, work. But, um, and, uh, and now a strong advocate for vi- environmental volunteer work and working with nonprofits. Graduated in the early 80s, and um, at that time, the Federal Register was not open. There, It was really difficult to get jobs in the environmental field, and I gave up on it and applied for nursing school at UL. And uh, so I was going to go to nursing school in the fall, and I happened to meet someone who worked at Fish and Wildlife. I didn't even know there was a Fish and Wildlife Service office in Lafayette. And so I met her, and she said, I'm really trying to talk my boss into hiring a, a biotech, and uh, if you come and volunteer. Uh, so I started volunteering many moons ago and still do it now. But uh, so I volunteered for, you know, like six weeks, and then they liked what I did, so they hired me on. And 31 years later, I retired from that same office. (laughs) I liked it. They liked me. (laughs) So it worked. You know, what I did changed over the years. But, um, you know, there's... There was a lot of good work, and I was blessed to have a job where, you know, I was doing something that I felt that when I left after a career that I had put something on the ground and had something, a legacy. Um, I did several different things for Fish and Wildlife Service, Um, mostly worked on the wetland regulatory program, and in that regard, put a lot of habitat on the ground that benefited coastal birds uh, in every habitat type from sailing marsh to fresh marsh, to swamps and bottomland hardwoods and uh, riparian systems. So, you know, touched on, you know, you put the habitat there, then you benefit the birds, you benefit the coast. Um, what, what I did directly with um, the coastal restoration efforts was work on um, what they call migratory bird abatement plans. And um, so if, um, like down on the coast on the beaches, when there was a lot, a lot of beach restoration projects the coastal restoration is doing, which is wonderful, and, you know, we're all for it and want to have those those projects because it puts back the habitat that is vitally needed for uh, things like piping plover and, and such. And um, so, but what happens is they, the window of opportunity for them to be able to work is usually the summer because of the storms and such. And so if they need to be in there in the summer, that's also the same time that the shorebirds are all nesting. And so then they're destroying nesting habitat while they're working. So what we'd have to do is come up with, a, you know, an opportunity to, you know, scare the birds off. And so they wouldn't nest in that particular stretch of beach that they're working on for that season. And so they you do these abatement plans where you do all sorts of deterrent measures to try and keep the birds from 
you know, nesting in that area in the first place. Um, some are as simple as just putting what they call mylar strips out um, on flagging where you, know, you have these little, you know, silvery, shimmery strips of, of material that f- fly in the wind and, and that reflection and, and stuff chases off the birds, keeps the birds from settling. Um, just the constant presence of people and dogs. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, we had, you know, crews out there with running dogs. <laughs> I always said, man, I want that job where I could just throw a Frisbee for my dog all day. Right. <laughs> It worked. Um, there's pyrotechnics and things like that that they can use for less measures. That's yes. Right. There are the net cannons that right. they use sometimes when they're doing bird mm-hmm. counts. Correct. Yeah. So, but you know, you fire off a cannon too many times, the birds get used to it. So, um, but uh, you know, you just change up the techniques and, uh, and then some places where they needed to traverse, if there was actually nesting that happened anyway, then we would cordon off an area with some kind of visual block, like a, you know, some type of fence, fencing material that would keep those birds, you know, feeling secure and safe to nest and, and allow the traffic to move through that area. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and its partners manage migratory birds based largely on routes the birds follow as they migrate between nesting and wintering areas. Based on these routes, four administrative flyways, the Atlantic, the Mississippi, the Central, and the Pacific, were established in North America to facilitate management of migratory birds in their habitats. Administratively, the Mississippi Flyway is composed of the states of Alabama, Arkansas, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio, Tennessee, and Wisconsin, as well as the Canadian provinces of Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario. The Mississippi Flyway Council was organized in 1952 and contains representatives, usually agency administrators, from these state agencies and often provincial representatives from Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario. They have management responsibility for migratory bird resources within the flyway. The council was established to coordinate the management of migratory game birds in the Mississippi Flyway and to promote those activities of its members that serve the long-term benefit to the resources in the flyway as a whole. In addition, the Council provides a point of contact for the Fish and Wildlife Service for the purpose of coordinating federal, state, and provincial management activities, providing advice to the service on long-term and short-term migratory bird management needs of the flyway, including the establishment of harvest regulations so that the welfare of these resources can be properly safeguarded. Great. So what does that mean? It means that 14 states and three Canadian provinces are coordinating and collaborating on bird management, bird protection, habitat regulation... Okay, well, the, the predominant bird species that, that nest down there are, are plovers and, um, uh, in, uh, sorry, least terns. And uh, so you'll have Wilson's plovers and uh, snowy plovers and least terns and, you know. And the, the plover is listed as endangered, is that correct? Yeah, the piping plover. The piping plover, just yeah. that one. Now, the piping plover is just a wintering species in Louisiana, so they're not here during the summertime. They're not one of the nesters, but, you know, we do have other species that nest. Okay. So, uh, Coastal Restoration's been doing a lot of projects, like in the Barataria Basin. Um, so we, we've done Timbalier, Aldernair, uh, Grand Isle, West Bell Pass, um, the Shell Islands. I don't know, I'm probably forgetting a few of them, but, you know, Pretty much through Terrebonne and Jefferson and Plaquemine and Parish. Okay. And then also on the west. Um, so there, there was uh, some work around Rockefeller and um, Holly Beach. Um, so between 
those areas. During during my career, which is 31 years of Fish and Wildlife Service, I saw, you know, a lot of coastal land loss, um, you know, it was very evident. Um, you know, several of my projects, you know, habitats that we were really worried about <laughs> impacting, you know, by the time the project went through, the, the habitat was gone. I mean, it's it's very visible. Um, you know, so and on these beach fronts and coastal fronts, every time we got a large storm, you know, any type of major hurricane coming through, you could see shoreline retreat uh, was Caminata Pass and because uh, there was just a lot of bird um, activity in that area. And, um Elmer's Island in that area. Um, so, um, you know, it was successful in that, uh, you know, there were birds there, established birds there, um, and, you know, we had to, you know, do a pretty active abatement procedure in those areas and stay on top of it. And, you know, there were some nesting that occur- was some nesting that occurred, but very minimal, kept it down to a you know, manageable level. You know, those those projects, they take, you know, one season or two seasons to carry those projects through. So they were able to, to make it happen and continue the work. And the birds would return to these areas? Oh, yes. In fact, after they create the habitat, it's like perfect habitat. You know, it takes a, you know, it might take a year or two, uh, you know, a few years for um, the the prey uh, species uh, to, to, you know, go into that new sand material. But then once, once that happens, and it didn't really take that long, you know, a season or two, and then, and then it's prime habitat for nesting. You know, there's saltwater intrusion happening and a, and, and basically a migration of marsh. Uh, you know, not only do we have marsh loss, but we have marsh migration. So the salinity regimes are going uphill, you know, with, with the loss of marsh. And so what's really getting squeezed out are our fresh marsh systems, our intermediate and fresh marsh systems. And you, you can only have marsh up to a certain point and then your substrate changes. And so then you lose that. And, and we're really, um, losing a lot of our, our fresh swamp too and the habitat. And that's a coastal system as well. So the fresh swamps is a very, a vital coastal system because those swamps and those, those forests provide, you know, storm surge protection that the, the marsh is good at that too, but, you know, the woody vegetation block, block, you know, takes the wind down and, and provides that storm surge and, and wind protection element and uh so we're losing that and uh and that's getting squeezed and so you know the 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 swamps and the fresh marshes can't really move uphill you know so the 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 intermediate i mean the saline marshes are moving up and and migrating up and uh and then squeezing out the the fresh swamp and and fresh mars so what do we do about that I don't know what you can do about that because (laughs) that's a sea level rise issue. I mean, you can do what you can to restore habitat and, and, you know, I think we are, but, uh, you know, you're dealing, um, I guess the Mississippi River diversion projects, putting more sediment into a system, you know, to build up naturally the the base of, of land there and then the habitats will come. If you have the land, right? So Peter. there's a lot of degraded swamps, not not due to uh, natural pro- well, natural and man-made. But there's a lot of man-made features out here, you know, because of develop. There's a lot of development in the coastal Louisiana area, and and so uh, canals have been dredged and spoil banks go in, and then you don't have the circulation of water. A, mar- a swamp needs flowing water. I mean, a lot of people s- look at a swamp and think it's like this stagnant area, and it also needs to have this 
this draining. You know, so a lot of our swamps are getting waterlogged, and so they need to have outlets for water to flow out of them so that you have low water periods so cypress trees can regen. And of course, one of Louisiana's annual challenges, hurricane season. Well, I think that the, the largest ones that came through every five years or so were hurricanes, you know, and, uh, you know, besides just the direct loss from wind damage and storm surge. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of, you know, Sabine National Wildlife Reverage ended up with Cameron in their front yard. <laughs> so there was a lot, a lot of debris and issues there. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, that was always a problem. Uh, there was always uh, after the hurricane issues, too, in that, you know, when the trees fall into a drainage way because of a hurricane, then the drainage district wants to come in and, you know, clear the stream out. And I called them Ream the Stream Projects. But, you know, they took a, they took that opportunity to go in there and clean what fell in, but also just to annihilate a lot, you know. <laughs> A lot of, of riparian habitat to try and prevent that from happening in the in the future. And I mean, you need to be able to have your drainage ways, you know, effective and and not flooding people. But um, it's a give and take, and uh, there's a way to do it that you don't destroy everything in the process. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918 is a United States federal law first enacted in 1916 to implement the Convention for the Protection of Migratory Birds between the United States and Great Britain, acting on behalf of Canada. The statute made it the statute makes it unlawful without a waiver to pursue, hunt, take, capture, kill, or sell birds listed therein as migratory birds. The statute does not discriminate between live or dead birds and also grants full protection to any bird parts, including feathers, eggs, and nests. Over 800 species are currently on the list. Some exceptions to the act, including the Eagle Feather Law, are enacted in federal regulations which regulate the taking, possession, and transportation of bald eagles, golden eagles, and their parts, nests, and eggs for scientific, educational, and depredation control purposes for the religious purposes of American Indian tribes, and to protect other interests in a particular locality. Enrolled members of federally recognized tribes may apply for an eagle permit for use in bona fide tribal religious ceremonies. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service issues permits for otherwise prohibited activities under the Act. These include permits for taxidermy, falconry, propagation, scientific and educational use, and depredation, an example of the last being the killing of geese near an airport where they pose a danger to aircraft. The Act was enacted in an era where many bird species were threatened by the commercial trade in birds and bird feathers. The act was one of the first federal environmental laws. Okay, and, and you know, a lot of our native birds are considered migratory birds. If oh, you look okay. at the migratory bird list, you'd be surprised, but, you know, blue jays on it, cardinals on it, you know, and you're like, well, these are the native birds, but, you know, all birds, like I said, you know, in the summer, you don't see a whole lot of birds. Like, you don't see the cardinals and the blue jays in the summertime because they migrate. They just don't migrate very far, and they might laterally migrate, but they all kind of move to a different place that's a little bit more suitable when the the conditions are, are not right where they you know would call their native hat you know their res uh i guess residential habitat so you know you'll have you know cardinals are here year round but you don't have as many cardinals in august and you'll notice that if you you pay attention you know and they're like it's hot as hell i'm getting out of here and <laughs> i'm going to arkansas and uh so they may just go to arkansas but you know it's cooler there's there's you know mountains in arkansas so they're they're getting into a cooler environment and 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 they may only be gone for a month 
But, you know, so uh, there's very few species that are non-migratory. Okay. So. Are any of those considered native to Louisiana? Yes, and... Classified. I mean, sparrows are migratory. Okay. Blackbirds are migratory. Time. Well, I mean, they're all native. Native versus non-native would be like a, a non-native species would be something that wasn't endemic to the United States and has moved in, like a starling. You know, you're all the European birds that have come in over the years, uh, European house sparrow and starlings and stuff like that. Those are non-native species, and uh, they're not considered to be migratory even though they may actually migrate. migrate. And I, that's probably where your source of confusion is because you're thinking about migratory versus native. And so um, uh, they're not protected in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And um, so they don't offer the same protections. But, uh, you know, then there are species that, I guess, are moving north from Mexico, that weren't, na- you know, naturally native to Louisiana, but are, you know, coming like roseate spoonbills. You know, what a wonderful bird that is. But, you know, 30 years ago, you didn't see roseate spoonbills in Louisiana. Oh. So. I had no idea. That, that was a rare sight. And now they're more and more common every day. Oh, yeah. So. I'll see them flying over my house. Right. But, you know, they, they're they moving up from the south. And um, the uh, black-bellied whistling ducks, which are now starting to become common in our area, you know, weren't here 20 years ago that much. You need to see them, but not very often. So, and, and um, you know, that's a, that's a phenomenon of uh, uh, global warming, really, you know. And, um, you know, basically the Migratory Bird Treaty Act protects the birds, the nests, the eggs, I mean, actually even the feathers of all birds that are listed as migratory birds. So you cannot have any of that in your possession unless you, it's permitted. And um, so you can, like ducks are considered migratory birds, but you can possess ducks as long as you're within the legal limits and you have the stamps and all that kind of stuff, you know, for the, you know, for hunting the ducks. Um, but migratory birds are regulated and, and so some are allowed to, you, you can hunt, but, um, you know, a lot of them, the songbird species and, and things like that, you know, basically you need to leave, leave them alone. <laughs> and that's hard to do. I mean, a lot of people, you know, but, you know, like wildlife rehabbers, they have permits mm-hmm. to handle those birds. Right. And the fashion industry had a real impact on bird population at one point. Yes. So, you know, it was very fashionable in the turn of the 19th or 1900s or whatever to um, have feathers in your caps and Literally. plumes. <laughs> you know, the, the wading bird species, the coastal wading birds, those were the, you know, top species to have oh, egrets and, and stuff like that with those plume feathers you know that was very attractive and you know if somebody calls up and says i got you know doves nesting in my garage what do i do and that was a you know function of the fish and wildlife service because we you know are the, the agency that looks after migratory birds so you know you'd work with these people to you know try and get get the nest successful but not hinder their lives as much and um, and so you know there's a lot a lot of uh you know, nuisance issues with wildlife too, because the wildlife just goes where it wants to sometimes. And, but, you know, there's a lot of bird species that are protected through the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And so, um, you know, you consult with these people and try and work it, you know, ospreys nesting on power lines, with, you know, <laughs> and that kind of thing. But, um, anyway. 
and then, and then, then there was the coastal restoration work with the abatement plans. I did a little bit of mitigation, uh, uh, migratory bird banking for some impacts that, that happened there where we did, you know, habitat restoration plans to, to put back habitat specific for birds and, uh, Anyway, so did that, and uh, oh, and then there was the oil spill, right? And uh, oh, yeah, you had it yeah. Right so we had a lot of work with that, with endangered species, because a lot of the impacted habitats affected the piping plover species. Um, you know, the the pelican, which was just delisted that year, and uh, but was still you know a species of concern um, and being monitored because we had just delisted it, and um, and then just you know all the nesting birds that were down on the coast that are protected in the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And so, you know, first trying to get those birds out of harm's way, get them re- recovered and recuperated and, you know, where you could, and then estimating the loss of bird life and then trying, you know, coming up with these Restore Act projects to put habitat back on the ground to offset the impacts to to migratory birds. Did you do any of the hands-on efforts down after the oil spill? A little bit. Um, And and this was uh, very heartwarming to see with the Fish and Wildlife Service and a lot of, um, not just Fish and Wildlife Service, but, uh, you know, a lot of agencies and just volunteers, you know, uh, overall. But uh, we had a a thing where you'd sign up and and people with Fish and Wildlife Service all over the country were coming down and doing two and three work week stints, doing various things. But one of those things was getting the birds, the oiled birds off the islands and getting them to the rehab facilities. So I did a little bit of that. I can't imagine the birds are very cooperative. Um, uh, when, when they get to that point, they're just yeah. I mean, a lot of times they were just floating lethargically in the water, you uh-huh. know, not able to take off off the water. So you just go in the boat and net them. Okay. Well, with Fish and Wildlife Service, I worked primarily the wetland regulatory program with the Corps of Engineers, the Coastal uh, um, DNR, Coastal Rest, uh, Coastal Management Division. Um, whenever you put like a Walmart in, in an area on the outskirts of town. Um, a lot of times in Louisiana, the outskirts of town is going to be a wetland. And uh, so uh, in order for that Walmart to get permitted and uh, go on the ground, um, you know, we looked at opportunities to avoid and minimize and then to compensate for those impacts. And uh, so I would review it for habitat value and um, come up with, you know, potential mitigation projects. And as the re- well and regular program evolved, uh, we developed a, 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 a mechanism called mitigation banking, which, you know, I, I feel is was a godsend to the regulatory program um, because it allows for, um, you don't get a, you don't get a free pass to develop. You still have to do the avoidance and minimization and justify that you need the project. But once you get to that point, uh, mitigation banking would take um, a landowner or a business or some entity would come to us with a proposal to take thousands of acres of habitat in you know large parcels and say we're going to restore this habitat and we want to sell credits so that's where you get the banking concept so when the permittee gets this permit he buys the credit and to offset the impact and so we would do the calculations on how much they would need to do but typically it would be like three to one. 
So for every acre you lost, you're putting three acres in. These are large projects that are being monitored and, and you know, um, evaluated regularly, very successful, and um, they have perpetual conservation servitudes on them. So, and a lot of them tied in habitat, like for the Louisiana black bear, which is also a coastal species. And uh, so we would tie in all this habitat and, um, you know, tie in large swaths of habitat for coastal bird species and, and non-coastal species as well. But, uh, you know, when by the time I retired, we had over close to 200,000 acres of mitigation banking. And I'm, we're talking every habitat, uh, prairies, bogs, uh, you know, savannas, all the marshes and hardwoods and, and stuff like that, riparian habitats. So, you know. And it, was it equal, like, if you were building on a... Yeah, if you were building on fresh marsh, you had to mitigate in fresh marsh. Okay. And uh, and you have to mitigate in um, the, the watershed. Uh, we did 11-digit HUC codes, but, you know, they're hydrologic unit codes that... Um, you know, basically a watershed. So if you're in the Tesh Vermilion watershed, you mitigate in the Tesh Vermilion watershed. I mean, water sources in Louisiana are not, I guess, limited, but there comes a time of year when it is, and that's why, you know, in July and August and early September, the birds are gone because of their water sources and their, their prey are gone, you know, what they eat, the insects and stuff like that, except for mosquitoes, uh, you know, are, are gone. But I mean, if we have a big drought period, you'll notice there's not as many mosquitoes either. And uh, so, you know, you need the water and uh, and running water. If you have running water in your yard, you're going to have a lot of wildlife, you know, a lot of bird life. That's hard. <laughs> I like the least turns. Uh, they're uh, very vocal and, uh, you know, just out there. You know, they're easy to spot. They're always swooping around and stuff like that. But the plovers are so cute, too. I mean, you know, all the plover species are, are you know, very cute. They're like little chicks running around on the beach. <laughs> and so. they nest in on the sand, right? They nest right on the sand. And it's amazing how they can just nest out there in the open and you still don't see their nest. Uh, Grand Isle's a treasure, not only for fishing, but for birding. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's making me very happy to see all the work that's been done in that area to, to fulfill that, that coast and restore it and, and keep that birding, um, industry, you know, because it, it is an industry. I mean, people come from all over the world to go to Grand Isle to bird. Let's say that, most of the time in Louisiana is pretty good. I mean, you've got the two migration seasons, and um, and those are phenomenal if you go to the right places. That, you know, go to, to the coastal areas where the fallouts are occurring, and, and you know, I mean, you don't have to even take binoculars. You know, you can just walk around, and birds are you know five feet away from you. So you know, going to Grand Isle during a you know fallout situation is really cool, and down at, at Pevado and Cameron Parish, and um, you know, we have the sanctuaries and places to go. And um, so that that is cool. Um, I like winter birding uh, in Louisiana because we have a mild winter and a lot of species come down here and, and bird in the wintertime. And we have lots of species. I'd say the only time that's really not good is, is you know, the dog days of summer because the birds... They can take flight and leave, and they do. So just like we all go up north and, <laughs> and get out of Louisiana, uh, the birds do too. 
you actually don't even need a real expensive pair of binoculars. You know, there's there's binoculars out there in the $200 range that are good enough, you know, for backyard birding and, and stuff like that. And as you advance, you need a bird guide. That's the number one thing. And you need a bird guide. There's bird guides that are more suited to beginning birders. Um, you know, I had a golden guide. That was my first guide, you know. and uh, But, you know, it needs to have a range map because so many birds, you'll see it and you think you have it, and it's a species that's in Canada, you know. <laughs> It's like, okay, you rule that out right on. So you look at the, you know, range real quick and find out, well, that bird won't be here. A lot of birds, like I said, are here in the winter, but they're not here in the summer. So that, that rules out a lot of things. And, uh, there's a, uh, ID, uh, online ID source called Merlin. That's really good. And, um, you know, you get, you know, you can sign up for that. And, um, you, you know, let's say you're seeing a cardinal for the first time. And, and people in California don't have cardinals, by the way. And so, you know, when a Californian comes to Louisiana and sees a cardinal for the first time, you know, it's, it, it's amazing. So they're east of the Rockies. And, uh, you know, they'll go, what is that red bird? You know, and so you say, okay, it's a red bird about the size of a, a jay, you know, and, um, and then you put that in Merlin, and you'll say it's on the ground eating seeds, or it's perched in a tree, or, you know, you say what it's doing, its behavior, what its size is, and what its color is, is it general stuff. And, I mean, it's amazing how how much they narrow it down to just two or three species. And then they'll, they'll show pictures of those two or three species, and it's like, voila, that's a cardinal. Well, I went to Costa Rica oh, about six months, you know, this last year, and I got 140 new species on my life list. So that was amazing. So oh, I can't remember the last Louisiana lot, but yeah, birders are we're funny creatures, but uh, we we create a lot of lists. So I have the the life list, which I'm pretty bad at at putting in but um, then there's the yard list and I live on 20 acres so my yard list is pretty extensive but this last year on my yard list I got uh, swallowtail kite and bald eagle so um, so those were pretty cool and that's in Arnoville and uh so you know got that and uh and then you know you have like the costa rica list and stuff like that yes and uh you know if you're a large landowner in the coastal area and you have some great birding habitat there's places where you 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 can create open yards for birders and people come you know and get on on um work with your uh coastal um parish uh environmental people and you know because there's birding trails throughout louisiana and you can get on these lists and open up your you know if you don't mind having people come you know into a portion of your property but um you know and start managing that property for you know creating the the niches and stuff like that that these birds want and bringing bringing in that habitat and uh you know you can birders are amazing people i you know i gotta say i you know they they are conservation minded they love to come to communities and spend money in those communities because they feel like they're supporting the community that's supporting the bird habitat and they have that direct link uh, cameron parish is a good example of a, a parish that's kind of opened their doors up to birders and uh you know they're you know we're a bird friendly yard come stay at our hotel you know we have guides for birders and and things like that and and uh so there is an uh you know an economic opportunity with the birding 
Absolutely. folks yeah. and uh and here again birding equipment and stuff uh, a lot of a lot of birders bypasses to wildlife management areas and all that money goes to conservation good <laughs> there's a there's a lot of work on you know duck habitat because right. they're um they're they're a recreational species and there's a lot of money with duck stamps and and yeah. and all of that that goes into that and uh i, I want to say one thing uh people don't realize that when people hunt and fish and and buy duck stamps and stuff like that that that's what goes into these conservation efforts from all these wildlife agencies local wildlife agencies and 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 national wildlife agencies and um so you know a lot of a lot of people say oh, those duck hunters are killing all of our ducks but it's their money it's their money in firearms and bullets and and their lies their stamps their licenses that's going towards conservation efforts absolutely well i mean just create different layers and different structures of habitat if you want to bring birds and you know like just into your backyard you know you need that shrub habitat you need diversity you need native species you know don't don't landscape with exotics you know they there's a reason why they're natives and that's because they're suited as food sources for our native wildlife so doing that um you know, it would go a lot. It goes a long way. It goes a long way for birds and pollinators, and having you know having native berries and flowers and stuff like that um, that that support our native species of of wildlife. Um, and you know, t- it provides a lot of viewing enjoyment for you when you're sitting in your yard too, to to see monarchs and you know uh, all the the, the seed eating birds and and stuff like that coming into your yard. I ended the interview with Patty by asking her what her favorite bird of all time was and recollected a story that she'd once told me that the red-winged blackbird was her favorite bird. Turns out my memory was faulty or maybe she's changed her mind or maybe she can't make up her mind and pick just one favorite bird. I probably did tell you red-winged blackbird story because the the female red-winged blackbird is overlooked. You know, everybody, you know, has this concept of a male blackbird and he's got this, you know, red epaulet and he's he's very striking. And but you know, you see these female blackbirds go by and you're just like, "Oh, it's just a blackbird." And one of my first birding trips when I really got started into birding, which it was not until I was 38. So uh, even though I was a wildlife biology major, and I dabbled around it when I was in college, I didn't start birding until I met some girlfriends that were interested in it. And we went down on a coastal migration trip and saw all the warblers coming in and everything. But I saw this one bird in this tree that was strikingly beautiful. And it had all this streaking and stuff, very subtle streaking. But, you know, if you really look at a red, female red-winged blackbird, there there's a lot of pattern to them and a lot of beauty in that bird. But i got to say my... My favorite bird is probably the kingfisher. Oh yeah, and uh, I like a kingfisher. They're uh, they're rowdy and, and assertive, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> it totally makes sense. And they're very successful fishers, uh, fishermen, and fisher ladies, and uh, you know, <laughs> fisher chicks. But uh, they're they're uh, very visible and very apparent when when they're here, and and and, and they come in the winter when everything's dull in the winter and when you've got this this king bear, I mean this kingfisher out there you know doing its thing it's it's striking
And that's it for today's episode of Coastal Connection. Thanks again to Patty Holland for joining us. And thanks to you for listening in. You can always find us on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, as well as our website, lacoast.gov. This podcast is brought to you by the Coastal Wetlands Planning, Protection, and Restoration Act. The QIPRA program is a federal legislation program enacted in 1990 designed to identify, prepare, and fund construction of coastal wetlands restoration projects. Since its inception, over 200 coastal restoration or protection projects have been authorized. For more information about the QIPRA program, find us online at lacoast.gov. Become our friend on Facebook or follow along in our Instagram adventures at Quipra underscore outreach. We want to know what you're thinking. What are your questions and concerns about the coastal wetlands of Louisiana? Drop us a line on social media or email us directly at cwppra at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of IPF Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its board of directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.